This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you are doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me, as always, is a man who shops at food and stuff. It's where he gets his food and his stuff. Ladies and gentlemen, the captain. Yeah, destroying the government from the inside out. It's good to be seen and good to see you. Thanks for listening, and thanks for telling a friend. This week, I am very excited to be featuring a seasonal beer from one of our very favorite breweries. This week, look out, because we are featuring Peachful by the Great Highland Brewing in beautiful Asheville, North Carolina. Inspired by the South's favorite fruit, this ale features the soft sweetness of the peach. This ale is delicious and refreshing. Garage grade three and three quarter bottle caps out of five. And we'd like to thank some of our friends for helping us out with this week's beer fun. First up, we got a big shout out to Frank in Kingsley, Michigan. And a big shout out to Nicole in Charlotte, North Carolina. And here's a sunny cheers to Stephen in Tampa, Florida. And a big we like your jib to Kelly in Evansville, Indiana. Let's give a cheers to Ruth Anna in Crisfield, Maryland. And last but certainly not least, we have Joseph in Perth, New Zealand. Everyone we just mentioned went to truecrimegarage.com and helped us out with this week's beer run. And for that, we thank you. Yeah, say it with me. B-W-E-R-R-U-N, beer run. Go to the store and get you some. Hey, but if you're not on the mailing list, go sign up right now because I've been sending out promo codes. I'm going to send out another one in a couple weeks. And so if you're not on the list, you're not in the know. And Colonel, that's enough of the business. All right, everybody gather around, grab a chair, grab a beer. Let's talk some true crime. This week's crime story reads like some kind of legal thriller or a crime fiction novel like those by the great John Grisham. But trust me, my garage friends, when I say this, unfortunately, is a very real and true story. This week, we go to the big city of Baltimore, a city that frankly has left us with many a mystery. Back in February of 2019, We here at True Crime Garage told you the story of Detective Sean Souter, a young, hardworking Baltimore homicide detective who was killed on the job with his service weapon. The Baltimore Police Department stated they believed his death was a suicide. We told you that something fishy was going on, 
Detective Souter was killed just one day before he was scheduled to testify before a federal grand jury investigating police corruption in Baltimore. To this day, many still debate Detective Souter's death. Could the Baltimore police be correct in their findings? Or was Souter murdered in the line of duty? Or even worse, murdered by one of his own? In September of 2020, we followed the hit show Unsolved Mysteries and filled in some blanks in the Ray Rivera case. Ray was an aspiring screenwriter who had recently ended a long-term position with one of those big financial and investment research firms. Ray disappeared after receiving a mysterious phone call. About a week later, he was found at Baltimore's historic Belvedere Hotel. His body somehow came crashing through the lower roof of an empty meeting room located on the lobby level. Ray left us with many questions, including a cryptic note folded up nice and tight and taped to the back of his computer alongside of a blank check. To this day, we still do not know what that note means or why Ray ran out of his home after receiving that phone call. Both Ray Rivera and Detective Souter's still unsolved, unresolved cases read like a great John Grisham novel. This week's case involves a young federal prosecutor working on a high-profile trial. This young man is working hard, probably burning the candle at both ends, when he gets a late-night phone call. He abruptly leaves his office near midnight, embarking on a late-night roundabout journey punctuated by mysterious transactions and unexplained time gaps. Then, his body is found in Amish country. Someone or someones stabbed the young prosecutor 36 times, yet no one was seen with him. His trip makes no sense, and his stab wounds raise even more questions. Jonathan Paul Luna was 38 years old when he was killed. This case has been called Baltimore's most high-profile and perplexing murder investigation. And this is True Crime Garage. December of 2003, Jonathan Paul Luna is 38 years old. He's an assistant U.S. attorney, and at this time, he is actively prosecuting a big case. Jonathan left the private practice world four years earlier and became a federal prosecutor at the U.S. Attorney's Office in Baltimore, Maryland. In his role, he prosecuted many cases against child pornographers, drug dealers, counterfeiters, and so on. But his current case involved a locally well-known rap artist whom the government was accusing of running a heroin ring out of his downtown Baltimore music studio. The trial was in full swing on Wednesday, December 3rd. But as happens in many cases, on day three of the trial, the parties decided to enter into a plea agreement. Jonathan wrapped up court that day around 6 p.m. and he went home. Jonathan lives with his family in Elkridge, Maryland. This is a family of four. We have Jonathan's wife, Angela, an obstetrician, and their two young sons, five-year-old Justin and 10-month-old Jacob. And living with them is his mother-in-law. So it's going to seem like a typical evening. They sit down and have dinner. Then after dinner, he explains to his wife, I have to go back into the office tonight. This is because of that plea deal. Jonathan had to prepare the plea agreement that would be settled upon in court the next day. So he left for the federal courthouse in downtown Baltimore at 8.48 p.m. Now, my understanding here, Captain, it's a short drive for him to get to work. It's about 10 miles. At some point, Jonathan decided to take his work home with him. So he's at the office. He's burning the midnight oil, as they say. And he decides, you know what? I'm going to finish the rest of this work up at home. So he returns to the house. And as he was working, now around 11 p.m. that night, Jonathan received a call on his cell phone. 
And after he hung up the phone, he told his wife, Angela, that, hey, I got to go back to the office again. Now, it's our understanding that late evening phone calls were far from unusual for his line of work. This was a 24-hour-a-day job for the dedicated attorney. So one time going back to your office might not seem like that big of a deal, but two, maybe raises a red flag here or there. But we do know that he did go back to the office a second time. If I'm the wife, two is definitely going to raise a red flag for me. However, let's keep in mind that second trip back to the office is spurred by the phone call that he receives. And unfortunately, we don't know who was on the other end of that call. And as you said, Captain, we do know for a fact that he did go back to the office. This is because building records show that his Honda that he was driving his vehicle entered the parking garage and stayed there until after 1130. It's what happened after that that is really a mystery. We have some information on Jonathan's movements that night, but before we get into that, we should note that later that night, Jonathan's wife, Angela, called police. This is to report her husband missing when he never came home, and she could not reach him on his cell or at his office. When Jonathan failed to show up for court the next morning at 9.30 a.m., the U.S. Attorney's Office in Baltimore raised the alarm that a federal prosecutor had gone missing. Little did they know that Jonathan's body had already been found. And the location where his body was found and the manner in which he died would raise more questions. This case becomes more difficult because he's in a line of work that you don't share the details with your spouse. There's a lot of mystery in this case. There's a lot of mystery in Jonathan Luna's movements that night. So we know Jonathan is a lawyer Colonel, can you give us a little more background on who Jonathan is? Jonathan Paul Luna was born to parents Paul and Rosella. He was raised in the Patterson Housing Projects in the Bronx, where he picked up his lifelong love for the Yankees. His father worked as a gentleman waiter at one of those high-end restaurants in the city, and his mom stayed at home with the two Luna boys, him and his brother. Jonathan was well-liked, but was considered a bit of an egghead. He was known to sit in a closet in the Luna's cramped apartment reading books. Jonathan's best friend, Daniel Rivera, told the Washington Post, quote, we thought he was a bit of an oddball, end quote. Young Jonathan was known to his friends by his nickname, Joey. Again, quoting from the Post, in high school, Joey Luna frequently showed up for class wearing suits and ties. With curly hair and a runner's physique, the six-foot-tall Luna was handsome. Tiger Wood handsome is what they would say. Now, after working his way through college, Captain, he set his sights on law school. He went to the very prestigious University of North Carolina Law School and graduated in 1992, president of his class, after taking a year off to care for his cancer-stricken father. So you can see this is a guy, he comes from humble beginnings, he aims high, he shoots for the stars, but at the same time, he never lose, loses track of who he is and where he came from, taking time off from his dream of becoming an attorney to take care of his, his father who was ill. After law school, he worked as an associate at one of DC's top law firms, but soon decided he wanted to be in the public sector. So he moved to the Federal Trade Commission, and then the District Attorney's Office in Brooklyn. Again, a far cry from the cushy job at a private firm. Always found individuals that were bookworms as a child to be very interesting and, and, and very complex individuals, but also individuals that really knew themselves. And eventually he gets this opportunity to join the U.S. Attorney's Office in Baltimore as a federal prosecutor, and he jumps all over it. The Maryland U.S. attorney who hired him, Lynn Battaglia, said of Jonathan, quote, he had a really vivacious personality, peppy, excited, full of vigor. He really wanted the job. He really wanted to be an assistant U.S. attorney, end quote. According to the Post, in his four years at the U.S. attorney's office, he prosecuted about 80 criminal cases and six civil cases. 
Most were drug cases, but there were also many tough draining cases, such as the conviction Jonathan obtained of a man who sexually abused his seven-year-old daughter and a man that Jonathan got sentenced to 120 months for sexual exploitation of a minor. Meanwhile, Jonathan met medical student Angela on a blind date, and as they say, it was love at first sight. They were married on August 29th, 1993. They moved to Elkridge, Maryland, where Angela was from. And eventually, listen to the character of this young man. Eventually, Jonathan paid for his parents to move nearby and help subsidize their home payments. That's just the kind of person he was. He was going to take care of mom and dad. All of his colleagues seemed to like him. And it does sound like Captain around the time of his death, that might be a little more debatable. But for the most part, he's there for a four-year span. We couldn't really find anybody to publicly say a bad word about him. And on the contrary, he was called special. He was exciting and idealist. A former prosecutor who worked with Jonathan named Joe Evans said he was wonderful, upbeat person who was supremely dedicated to his mission and to his profession. Even a defense attorney on the trial that Jonathan was working on when he died, Mm -hmm. he said he was a very decent person. And this is opposing counsel. You know, even some of the defendants he worked so hard to put away, I guess they affectionately called him Tito because they thought he, because they thought he might look like Tito Jackson. Opposing counsel, but they work in the same field. They're, they're, they're colleagues. Right. But also what we've learned in the last seven years is if a bunch of people like you and if you walk into a room and light it up, you might want to watch your back. Thankfully for me, I don't have that problem. Mm -hmm. You darken the room. (laughs) Uh, He was an athletic guy, though, Captain. He was an avid marathoner. He loved to organize the office softball team and throw dinner parties. I guess he joined the Barristers Club in November, the November before he was killed. This is a fraternity for judges and lawyers. And his violent, lonely death in that cold stream in the middle of Nowheresville, Pennsylvania, was really was the last thing that anyone would have expected. Just this initial introduction makes me think of the the movie The Firm. Mm-hmm. But let's dive into what we know about the crime scene. Yeah, so at 5 a.m. on Thursday morning, this is December 4th, we have a drilling employee. There's a company there. I'll avoid their name. But we have an employee, he's starting out his day as usual in the pre-dawn hours. The company was located on Dry Tavern Road in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. The worker parked his truck, went inside, you know, did the normal stuff, got coffee, went back outside to fill the company's trucks with fuel for their daily rounds. When he's doing this, he spots a red light in the darkness off the road near a wooded area. So next we have a coworker that shows up and the two men walked over to see what this light was. It's not supposed to be there. As they approached, they were startled to see that they had come upon what appeared to them and what I'm sure they assumed was a car crash. They see a silver 2003 Honda Accord that is 75 yards off of the road. The vehicle's front wheels are in a small creek. The headlights were off, but the engine was still running. The red light they had seen was coming from the dashboard indicator light. Concerned, the men peered into the window of the vehicle, but the car was empty. In the dim light, keep in mind, it's still dark at this time, they could see what looked to them to be blood on the front seat and a child's unoccupied car seat in the back of the vehicle. The workers called 911 and reported what they had found. When asked on the phone by the operator, they said, no, we did not see the driver of the car anywhere. The area of Pennsylvania where we're talking about here, Captain, is 100 miles from Baltimore. This is Amish country. It was so rural and peaceful that no one was on duty from the local township police force. 
So instead, the state police handled the 911 call. So now, very quickly, we have Pennsylvania State Police troopers who arrived on the scene. They had no trouble locating the car's presumed operator. He was lying face down in the stream, basically under the front of the running Honda. He had no pulse. EMT EMTs noticed right away that the dead man appeared to be riddled with stab wounds. Now, back in Baltimore, Jonathan's failure to appear in court was a big deal. And word spread quickly that he was missing. When word came in that he had been found dead 100 miles away, there was an immediate call to action. His boss, U.S. Attorney for Maryland, held a press conference on the steps of the federal courthouse building and swore to solve Jonathan's murder, saying, quote, let there be no doubt that everyone in law enforcement, local police, state police, United States Marshals, ATF, FBI, are united. We will find out who did this. We are dedicated to bringing the persons responsible for this tragedy to justice. That's a commitment from me. That's a commitment from every law enforcement officer in the state of Maryland. Jonathan's funeral would be attended by over a thousand individuals. Here's where we start to have a bunch of problems with our true crime story this week here, Captain. It's when you really try to dive into the details to figure out what happened. And a spoiler alert here for those of you that don't know the Jonathan Luna case. At some point, the his whole death, you know, he is found stabbed and in this shallow creek, in the waters of this shallow creek. But there will be debate in this case over the years as to was this a suicide or a homicide? Now, things were back then and are still to, to this day very complicated by the refusal of law enforcement to release the autopsy report. In the absence of actual information from that report, anonymous sourced comments and rumors have skewed the narrative of the autopsy findings. As a result, there was a ton of misinformation at the beginning of this case, and I'm going to go through some of that misinformation right now. So, for example, we have Judge Corals. This is the judge that's presiding over Jonathan's current trial when he's killed. This judge tells the Associated Press that the prosecutor, Jonathan, had suffered multiple stab wounds and gunshot wounds. Someone else said that Jonathan appeared to be the victim of a, quote, an execution-style murder, sources told ABC News. Another bit of information here, or misinformation, a search warrant affidavit by the Pennsylvania State Police said that Jonathan had suffered a traumatic wound to the right side of his head. Now, here is what we actually know, and I'm going to use air quotes when I say the word actually. Here's what we actually know with the caveat that the reports have never been officially released. So we only, quote, know this stuff from people in the know who have commented or from leaked information. Well, a lot of this information is going to come from the Dr. Barry Walton. So he's a family doctor, but also works at the Lancaster County or works as a Lancaster County coroner. And the way that this comes out, as said, the, the autopsy has never been officially released. Also, they've refused to release it, but he's answered some questions on the record. He was present when the forensic pathologist conducted the autopsy. Now, while the actual pathologist refused to discuss the results, Dr. Walp has talked, and he said to the Baltimore Sun that Jonathan was found dressed in a business suit, shirt and tie, an overcoat, socks and shoes, that there was no wallet or cell phone in Luna's pockets, but he was wearing a work identification badge around his neck. He was also wearing his wedding ring at the time of his death. Now, back to the wallet. I have seen reports that say it was not in his pockets, but was found in the vehicle. As for the cell phone, not so much. Not located. We'll get into the cell phone in a little bit. Dr. Walp also reported that Jonathan died from drowning and had suffered multiple stab wounds in the neck and upper chest. He was not shot. His death was ruled a homicide. 
So no matter what we want to debate, it was ruled a it was ruled a homicide. Multiple sources say that Jonathan suffered 36 puncture wounds to his upper chest, neck, and head. More than half of the wounds were to his neck. Well, I'm going to play a little Captain Obvious for you, but in a mystery murder case, one of your options that's on the table is possible suicide. This is not suicide, period. And how do we know that? We have evidence of 36 puncture wounds. That's what they're telling us. You, you don't puncture yourself 36 times, so you can take suicide off the table. This lawyer, Jonathan Luna, was viciously murdered. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Everyone is still talking about Monopoly Go for a good reason. It is an absolute hit. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Like countless crazy tournaments, you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Or timed events, offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums. Delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches. Unique playing pieces and so much more. The verdict is in. With Monopoly Go, there's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now free on the App Store and Google Play. Do you want to set your child up for success? Of course you do. That's why you need to check out IXL Learning today. IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. It's powered by advanced algorithms. IXL gives the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. There's one site for all kids in your home pre-K to 12th grade. Kids could use it at home on their computer or on an app on your phone or a tablet. No more grading those worksheets. IXL grades everything for you. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. I love recommending IXL Learning. Kids can learn at home or on the go. And all my friends and family that are using it absolutely love it because it's so easy to set up and so easy to use. And even the kids that I've recommended it to their parents have told me, hey, Captain, thank you. I was having problems in math and my parents couldn't help me but IXL could. Do you want to get your kids back on track or do you just want to get your kids ahead? Do so with IXL Learning. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And True Crime Garage listeners get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com garage. Visit IXL.com slash garage to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Check out IXL.com slash garage today. The best part of spring cleaning takeaway is the post-clean clarity you get. It's kind of like when you find out that you've been paying a fortune for wireless. When Mint Mobile has phone plans for $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. It's time to switch. To Mint Mobile. All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all of your existing contacts. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. Save a lot of money with Mint Mobile. Get their great mobile wireless service delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. That's premium service at a great price. 
To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash TCG. That's mintmobile.com slash TCG. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash TCG. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. I am new to Factor, and I have been loving every minute of it. I have a problem, and it's called lunch. Some days I need to pack a lunch, and some days I work from home. Whether I'm at home or whether I'm on the go, Factor is fueling my lunch from now on. Head to factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 and use code truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month. That's code truecrimegarage50 at factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. All right, we are back. Cheers to the windows, to the walls. Love you all. I love that music, Captain. Crank it up in my headphones. <laughs> <laughs> Tall cans in the air. Cheers to everybody for joining us in the garage once again this he, week. He was shaking his tush in his seat. That's right. I'm the best chair dancer you've ever seen. Mm. Now, Captain, these stab wounds are very interesting to me, and I think you were touching on that just before the break there because there were so many of these puncture wounds. It's been reported by multiple sources. Jonathan suffered 36 puncture wounds. Let's get into some of the details about that. So this Dr. Walp said that Jonathan had suffered a number of shallow, quote, prick marks on his chest and neck in addition to several deeper, more serious stab wounds. Most of the stab wounds to Jonathan are now largely reported as mostly superficial. This is from the Post. A federal prosecutor found stabbed and drowned in a rural Pennsylvania creek suffered numerous shallow puncture wounds described as prick marks on his chest, neck, and head, suggesting that he had been tortured. Now, according to the coroner who examined his body, said of these this, referring to the numerous prick marks, said you would think that they were perhaps after information from the guy when you see something like this, or perhaps for kicks, meaning these are just little little jabs and little stabs, and maybe somebody was holding him down and trying to get information out of him, or there was some kind of torture that was being performed on this young man. As for Jonathan's several severe stab wounds, some penetrated at least four inches deep, deep enough to cause hemorrhaging on both sides of his neck. The Post reports that Jonathan's left carotid artery had been punctured, causing him to bleed to death in minutes. Now, basically what they're saying here, Captain, is he, the water killed him. He drowned in that small amount of water. Right. Because he's found face down in the water. 
but they're letting us know that these stab wounds and where the injuries were on his body, especially that carotid artery, were enough to kill him. So he would have died from the stab wounds. It's just the water killed him first. Makes you wonder, because in this case, they were going to reach an agreement. So normally, when that is happening, both sides are like going to be happy about something. They're making a compromise. Mm-hmm. It's not wanted, you know, oh, well, this guy did a bad job, and now I'm going away for for life, and I think he screwed it up, and so I'm going to make him pay. It, it seems like, like we said, in this case, they were coming to agreement. Right, and you're jumping to what was everyone's first suspicion in this case, right? You got this prosecutor. He's actively working this big case. Well, it must involve the case that he was currently working on, and- You know, we said that him being found in this creek a hundred miles away, murdered this way, was the last thing that anybody would have expected. Well, that's not entirely true. There is a certain amount of danger that comes with this job, right? You're putting away bad people who probably would like to do something bad to you. So it's not the last thing that anybody would expect. We're, we're spot on with our statement because of the way that he is found and where he is found. Nobody would have expected him to be killed this way and so far from home. Now, back to some more of this information regarding the never-released autopsy. Again, Dr. Walp said in an interview cited by the Post that Jonathan was still breathing when he was dumped face down in the frigid water. So that goes back to the idea that the water killed him first, but he certainly would have died from these puncture wounds. Yeah, brutal. The doctor also said that there was a considerable amount of congealed blood, which indicated to him that Jonathan had probably been lying there in that position for a period of time. I hate when they use the phrase a period of time. We know he was there for a period of time. Was it a long period of time or a short period of time? Yeah, at least give us that. Yes. Dr. Walp corrected the statement in the police affidavit citing the traumatic injury to Jonathan's head. He said that there was no there was no such injury. However, and this makes a lot of sense, the Post reports that there was a head wound, but it's believed to have happened when he landed in the creek, that maybe it wasn't somebody striking him over the head with something. It's simply when he fell face down into the creek, That's when he had this injury to the head. Defensive wounds. Were there any? This is what we want to know, especially when people are going to argue suicide. So the Post reported that there were cuts to Jonathan's hands and a fingernail mark near his wrist. But there were no cuts to his arms. And most reports say, citing anonymous law enforcement sources, that there were no defensive wounds. I debate that a little bit based off of the information that there were cuts to his hands. But again, without this document being released, we don't know exactly what is fact and what is fiction here. Yeah. Is the doctor telling us the truth or is he just speculating on what he believes happened? Now, the vehicle, Jonathan's vehicle is going to be of major import to this case, of course. The Maryland tags on the Honda stood out right away to the Pennsylvania State Police. Tracks on the ground showed how the Honda had turned off of the road and ended up creekside. The car's doors were closed. The headlights were off. The engine was idling. I'm assuming it was in park or was stuck in a way that it couldn't move. The front wheels were reportedly right on the edge of the short embankment to this this very shallow stream, leaving indentations in the soft mud. A police affidavit indicated that there was blood in the car. And we know that we have the two gentlemen that call 911. They say that they saw blood in the vehicle as well. But according to this police affidavit, Captain, along with the blood inside the car, there was cash scattered inside the vehicle. Mm-hmm. The Post reported that about $200 in cash was found in the vehicle and also something that they're calling cell phone equipment was found in the back of the vehicle. I'm guessing that might just be cell phone charger was found in the back. Yeah, of the Maybe vehicle. it's old Zach Morris phone, right? Well, it's 2003. 
the affidavit also said <laughs> he was, that he was holding on to his vintage. You know, the affidavit also said that the investigators found blood smeared on the outside of the driver's side door and left front fender of the vehicle inside the car. The affidavit said that there was a large pool of blood on the right rear floor of the car. So we know that he has 36 puncture wounds. He's going to be, unfortunately, leaving a lot of blood at this scene. It's really interesting to me where they're finding a lot of this blood. It would appear to me that he suffered a lot of these wounds before exiting the vehicle. And he might at some point have been in the rear seat of this vehicle. Right. The FBI conducted DNA tests on the blood found in the Honda it looks like they were looking to see if all of the blood found was Jonathan's or perhaps someone else, someone else's blood as well had been bleeding in the car. There were many early reports. This is incredibly interesting to me how these things seem to go away in this case. But early on, Captain, there were many early reports that it was determined that there was blood from a second person found in the vehicle. But nothing else about this has ever been released to the public. Right. What was not found in Jonathan's car, again, his cell phone. It was sitting in his office at the courthouse. And so were his eyeglasses. You would think that if he met somebody at his office, they would have record of this or have some kind of CCTV surveillance. You would be shocked at the lackluster security set up at the courthouse. I was really surprised when you have these people who are working with dangerous individuals that probably receive threats on the reg that there's not better security or better surveillance at this area. Now his cell phone and his eyeglasses being found at the office could be an indicator of either he rushed out of the office for some reason or if he were to have been abducted at some point that night, maybe it happened at the office or he simply just forgot them. It's really confusing, but I think it's a piece in this case that we cannot overlook and it should not be understated. Well, it's strange though, because he had two important calls that we know of that altered the events of his night. So you would think that if, even if he's leaving in a rush, He's making sure he has that cell phone just in case he gets another call. Well, since Jonathan Luna is a federal employee, the FBI is going to head up this investigation. And it looks like a field agent in Baltimore, her name Jennifer Love, handled the case. She made a public request for information saying that the agency was aggressively investigating the circumstances surrounding Jonathan's death. They looked at his computer files, emails, financial records, past trials and prosecutions. They poured over his phone logs and Palm Pilot information. I forgot all about Palm Pilots. They interviewed his family, friends, colleagues, and associates, and so on, just like we would expect them to do. Investigators descended on this Lancaster County in the days after the death showing Jonathan's photo to motel desk clerks and gas station attendants and asking for guest logs and video security camera footage. The only avenue that bore fruit was when they started retracing his steps after he left the office on that fateful night. Jonathan's car had in it what in the state of Maryland and other states is called an easy pass transponder. So this allows one to do automated payments at toll booths so that you don't have to stop and throw change in the bucket or hand over some cash to right. the toll booth operator. Investigators gathered the electronic toll records from his transponder and the security video of the transactions at toll booths where payments were registered that night. They also pulled his ATM and credit card records and looked to see where those cards were used if they were used that night. And, and they were, and the picture that started to emerge of Jonathan's last hours. Well, frankly, they're very, very confusing. Well, before we dive into the events of that night, 
let's go back to this trial because they're set to make a deal, mm-hmm. which, like I said, sets his evening in motion. So what was this whole trial about? Okay, so you're spot on here, Captain, because this was everyone's first assumption in Luna's death. And in fact, so much so that as soon as his body was found, his co-prosecutor on the drug trial and his family and Luna's family were all placed under immediate law enforcement protection. Judge Lynn Battaglia, who had hired Jonathan in 1990 when she was a U.S. attorney for Maryland, told the Post, quote, I was fearful that he had been killed in relationship to the job, which is what everyone thought, end quote. So these guys that he worked this deal with, Walter and Dion, we know that they were both behind bars at the time of Jonathan's death. So they physically weren't the ones who killed him. But could they have arranged for some type of hit? Now, this would make a lot more sense, as you're pointing out here, Captain, if there were no plea bargain on the table. Right. And Jonathan Luna is the one that made the plea bargain to them. And so we have one of the attorneys for these guys that goes well out of their way to point out, look, not only was this a plea agreement in in favor of these two guys that were facing all these charges, it was a really good deal for both of them. More serious charges were being dropped, in fact. And so it was a really good deal for them. And so the attorney goes out of his way to say, look, they're not involved. They didn't have anything to do with it because if something happened to Jonathan Luna, they run the risk of something happening to that really good deal that they were going to get. I do want to point something out here, though, before we move off of this idea. I don't think that this should be so quickly dismissed. I agree. Because, look, a lot of criminals are pretty dumb people. All right. And what happened if they ordered some kind of hit and the information of the plea deal being offered that same day never makes it its way to the person that's going to carry out the hit? And so what if the hit was arranged before things had turned in their favor and it was a dramatic turn in their favor, an abrupt turn in their favor? So what if that information didn't reach the right set of earballs and some monster goes out there and handles things the old dirty way? before they receive the information. I think that that should still be a possibility. However, however, the big but on that one is, duh, this is investigated by the FBI and others. This is the angle that they would have pursued first mm-hmm. and that they would have really looked at the most severely early on in this case. And so while I don't think we can so quickly dismiss this idea, I'm a firm believer that this was thoroughly looked at and considered, maybe not ruled out completely, but but really strongly looked at in this case. Let me just say, I like big butts and I cannot lie, but maybe it's some kind of combination of that. Oh yeah, okay, the the case shifts and you're going to give get me a deal, but maybe this criminal from the beginning said, if this guy doesn't get me off, then he's he's gone. And to send a message to everybody else. I mean, who knows? But it seems like they were involved in quite a bit of wrongdoings. Yeah, so the the way these guys were violent individuals as well. They weren't just selling drugs. They were also violent. One, in fact, was accused of, of murder. But the thing here, though, Captain, is when I say dramatic and abrupt shift in the case, it was very much that because what ended up happening was the witness that was going to put these guys away was an informant that was working for the FBI and gathering information on these types of people. Right. But at the same time, this individual was slipping out of their, their ankle monitor that they were supposed to stay at home and continue to sell drugs themselves, continue to do violent behavior and break the law all while being on the take from the FBI. The problem with this then becomes for the prosecution because it it's going to look to everyone like, hey, there was an incentive for this guy to testify against these people. He's he's doing the FBI a favor. They're taking care of him and he's putting away these these other two bad guys. Meanwhile, he's committing all these same crimes himself. So it's a big, big problem for the prosecution. And it's my understanding. I did not 
pour through all of the court records on this situation, but it's my understanding that Jonathan Luna may have been aware of this. And I say may, it's very, very likely that he was aware of this. And this is what brought on the plea agreement because it looks to me like he failed to disclose that the prosecution, it's a whole team. So I shouldn't just say he, but they failed to disclose that information to the defense and Which so, is some big wrongdoing. Yes, yes. Here in the United States, you got to share the information. So when they have that, they're like, oh, well, maybe we can plea this thing out, give these guys a really primo deal. They take it, and nobody, no one's the wiser. Yeah, maybe they, maybe these individuals figured out that this guy had information that he lied about. And then we shouldn't limit the possibility of a revenge-type killing for his job to just this one trial. I mean, think about how many people he had put away in his four years working for or working as an attorney. It looks to me like the, the overall consensus regarding these individuals in that trial are that investigators decided that Jonathan's murder was not connected to that trial. And they even go out of their way to say that his murder was not connected to his work. So then they're going to have to start really looking elsewhere for an explanation. Well, we have evidence that he is not disclosing information that he should have been disclosing. So that starts making me question his character. And like we said, he could have had one character for most of his life. But some of these guys, they they were they start compromising their character to try to get ahead. Yes. And this is going to require the law enforcement to look into why there might be a personal motive to murder Jonathan Luna. So again, per the post investigators have interviewed Luna's wife, Angela, as well as his friends and associates, Paul Luna, the prosecutor's father, who was 83 at the time of uh, when he was interviewed said federal investigators questioned him and his wife for three hours at their apartment in Columbia. The investigators asked detailed questions about Jonathan's personal life. They asked whether Jonathan had financial problems. They asked if he had girlfriends or boyfriends that maybe Angela doesn't know about. And the digging did expose some secrets, some deceptions, also some rumors and allegations and unfounded accusations all of which were seized on by the media and the public. This is why Jonathan's family would eventually stop talking about the case altogether. The officials who were involved refused to address it any further, and the whole thing today remains a sword and impenetrable mess. It's almost impossible to determine what is true, what isn't, what's significant, and what's a total and complete red herring or even outright fallacy. So in February of 2004, this is at a news conference, FBI Assistant Director Cassandra Chandler said that the agency had been looking into more than 600 leads and explained that it's delving into Jonathan's personal life was necessary to find answers. The Baltimore Sun reported that while Jonathan was said to be outstanding at and dedicated to his job, that maybe things were not so bright and shiny on the inside. Co-workers told the paper that Jonathan had fallen out of favor with his boss, but we do have his boss who publicly denied whispers that Jonathan wasn't cutting it. But again, it's been kind of privately yeah, but confirmed. A, but that's after the fact. Correct. And, and some people will not speak ill of the dead. Right. And it looks like, okay, so he was hired by one boss. That boss moves on to bigger and better things, and then he gets a new boss. And some of us have experienced this, where maybe the old regime really likes you and likes the cut of your jib and how you do things, and maybe the new regime does things differently and doesn't like the cut of your jib. That's what it sounds like to me. But again, on the public level, his boss at the time of his death was saying, you know, everything was fine. He was a good employee. Mm -hmm. Well, what about some other rumors or speculation that We've heard. Well, this also kind of stems from his job, too. So even if we have the boss saying everything was fine, again, privately, people were saying, no, things weren't so fine, that his boss didn't like him. 
We also have three legal sources who spoke to the son that told the paper that Jonathan was not acting like himself as of late leading up to his death. He, they said he was distracted and disorganized, which doesn't sound like him at all based off of what we've already discussed. I wonder if there's any possible drug use. Well, keep in mind just on the morning, the morning before that fateful drive that later that night on December 3rd, Jonathan was late to court. And of course, judges do not like that. So the judge fined Jonathan $25 for being tardy. This is just kind of a little, you know, slap on the, on the hand there to remind you, Hey, you got a job to do. We expect you and everybody else here to be on time. Right. Jonathan told the court that he was at the hospital all night with his son who was ill. This is difficult. This could just be, you know, you're caught in the moment and you tell a little white lie. I couldn't find anything to confirm that he was at the hospital or that his son was at the hospital the night before. The other thing too, keep in mind, his wife is a doctor. Mm -hmm. So, she could provide uh, medical care and assessment of the son at home better than most of us, of course. Uh, the judge did hand out the fine regardless of the excuse. But the son's legal sources say that the rumors of Jonathan not being a good fit at the U.S. Attorney's Office were right. Again, three people said that he had hinted that he was getting ready to leave the prosecutor's office. And as you pointed out, though, Captain, a lot of this guy's work and a lot of things that the work being done within this office are kind of off limits to the public. They're all going to kind of be very secret stuff. We're not going to know all of the ins and outs of what everybody was doing or their performance reviews and the like. Now, you asked about other things. Well, of course, the police are asking about other things, too. One thing in particular was debt that they wanted to know about. Yeah. Financial troubles. This can be a reason for murder or suicide or the Baltimore sun reported that law enforcement sources said that Jonathan Luna was $25,000 in debt on several credit cards. Okay. So let's examine this. So this on the surface may seem like a lot, but really is it a lot for a man who has a family, a mortgage, two cars, is helping to support his parents and probably still has law school debt. Right. Maybe not. Here's where the problem comes in. The son says that he had as many as 16 credit cards. That's what the newspaper says as many as 16 credit cards and some that maybe his wife didn't know about. Okay. That's a lot of cards, right? Um, I don't know if I picture the George Costanza wallet when I hear that, but some people are better with money than others. Some people like to carry credit cards for the points. Jonathan's friends all said that he never seemed to lack money. Well, of course, he's got 16 credit cards. His wife was a doctor, so they had plenty of money coming in. One thing that I've always kind of thought about this, when you see very successful people that are carrying debt that might be a little higher than one would expect, a couple of things. One, are these just little debts that, that mounted up to much larger debt at some point and it kind of got forgotten about because they're successful people that are working very difficult, demanding jobs right. and they have two small children and he's taking care of his parents. These are little things that are just part of everyday life. And then one day you, you review your finances at the end of the year and you go, Oh my goodness. Well, it was a bad year or boom. Over the last few years, we racked up all of this debt. The other thing, though, too, when we talk about credit cards that his wife did not know about, this goes out to the, the married people out there, the people that have been married. This has never been my experience, but I have heard and been involved in conversations throughout my years on this big blue marble where people have told me so-and-so has been married for years and found out, oh, we were not in as good of standing as I thought we were. We were behind on our bills or... We had a lot more debt than I thought when I go, well, why didn't you know what was going on? Well, my husband handles the finances right. or my wife handles the finances and I just didn't pay any attention to it. I thought that she or he had it under control and I learned, whoa, we're in trouble. So this, this whole thing doesn't look, and I know that people have been killed over a lot less money, but 
when we talk about money troubles, I think the only reason why this is a factor here and this number is mentioned, this $25,000 and so on is mentioned here in Luna's case is because then there were suspicions that he could have been involved in a theft, that there were whispers about a possible theft. Thank you so much for joining us here on the Garage today. So much more to get to. If you need more True Crime Garage for your earballs, go to truecrimegarage.com and click on the Off the Record link. It's our bonus show, so it gives you a bonus of True Crime Garage. Yeah, check out the bonus show. You get all of the back catalog of Off the Record as well, which we've done over 100 episodes, and it's... As I've been told many times, it's America's favorite podcast. So check that one out. Join us back here in the garage tomorrow. Until then, be good, be kind, and don't let it. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes.